good morning again. It's good to be here with you this morning and I want to thank you for this opportunity to speak to y'all. I want to talk to you about some tactics of the enemy that we face in our daily lives. No one cares. You're alone. You're a failure. You're unworthy. These are thoughts that sometimes they assault us. They get in our heads. They immobilize us. They distract us. These are just some of the tactics of our enemy, our opponent. To win a fight against any adversary, we need to know what we're up against. Now, Satan is our opponent called the adversary, described as a predator, a thief, a murderer, and father of lies. He's a wolf in sheep's clothing and prowling like a roaring lion. If we look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. These are people used by Satan to deceive us. If we look at John chapter 10, verses 10 and 11, The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. And that's Jesus speaking there. And notice the comparison that the Lord makes for us about what his purpose is compared to the adversary. The Lord is our good shepherd, right? So we look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Be sober, be vigilant. These mean to be self-controlled, to maintain our faculties, to be focused and not distracted, to be alert and aware that there is a predator out there. Did you ever see Wild Kingdom? You know, Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom, right, with Marlon Perkins. And they'd send poor old Jim out and they'd say, let's watch as Jim tangles with that grizzly bear. They'd be like, oh, sorry, Jim, we'll see you in the hospital later, right? But really, we watched that show a lot when I was growing up. And we, uh, you could see on that show, you could see how predators really approached their prey. Like this cheetah, for instance. They sneak up, they get as close as they can to whatever they're hunting. Especially if it's in a herd, they try to sneak up and get as close to the herd as they can. They try to pick out one that has sort of strayed off by itself. Maybe it's a little slower or weaker than the others, but a lot of times it's just off by itself, away from the protection of the herd. They don't just like dash out and try to jump in the middle of the herd because that's not very successful. Instead, they pounce on that one that they've caught wandering out off by its own. And that's how Satan operates. He wants to catch us unaware, wandering off by ourselves, maybe at a time when we're struggling with our faith or we're struggling with other hardships and other bad things in our lives. 
the devil wants us to stop praying, stop praising God, stop reading the Bible, stop going to church, because that will make us weaker and we will wander and we will be vulnerable because we will be wandering away from the Lord who is our good shepherd, who is there. So what kind of enemy are we fighting today? If we look at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, stand. So verse 12 is the answer, but I, I want to make sure that we saw that, and we saw it in the right context. Principalities, if you're like me, like we've discussed some in our classes lately, I have to know what these words mean, because if I just read principalities and I don't know what it means, then that's not very helpful to me. So principalities, those are kingdoms, those are nations, those are empires. Whose kingdom are we fighting? Whose kingdom is arrayed against us? Well, that's Satan's, right? It says in verse 11, we need to be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And it's his kingdom. And powers in this case, this power is the power of influences from the world. These influences pull at us, distract us, deceive us if possible. The deceptions, these battles, they're in our hearts and in our minds. These are where Satan, I'm sorry, <clears throat> this is where Satan's power originates in deception. Look all the way back to the beginning, back in Genesis chapter 3, verses 2 through 5. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He's trying to make it sound good, right? Trying to make it sound tempting. But from the beginning, the very first thing Satan did was lie. He deceived Adam and Eve. They had a choice to make, and they chose to believe that lie. They were tempted, and they failed. Now, except for the love of God, that could have been the end right there. Just done. Done and over with. But it wasn't. God had a plan. Instead, the Lord came and defeated Satan. We look at Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Now I want us to make a comparison here. I want us to look at that last verse and compare that back with what we're fighting. 
If we look at Ephesians 6.12, it's principalities, powers. And who has he disarmed? Who has he defeated? Principalities and powers. The Lord has defeated our foe for us. However, um, Satan still has that same power he originally had to lie, to deceive. Now, through the Lord, we have victory, but we need to be aware that that is still there. The deceptions and the lies, he's still going to send that against us. This is nothing new. It's why we have the Bible, so we will know how to defend ourselves from those lies. It's important that we judge everything through the truth of God's word. The Lord bought us this opportunity with his life and his blood. It was that important. So I want to look at some of these tactics, these deceptions that Satan tries to use on us. Now, these are just some examples, but I think they're fairly common ones. When you're going through hard times, sometimes we have these thoughts. No one cares. I can easily point you to John 3.16 and 17 because we know God cares. There's no doubt that our Heavenly Father loves us or we would not even be here. But you can look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation. And we could stop right there, but it does continue that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. But God is the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. And he comforts us, he cares for us, no matter what kind of trouble we have, it says all tribulation, all troubles. Tribulation is just troubles, trials that we have. Sometimes we bring those on ourselves. But you'll notice he comforts us in all of them, even when it's our own fault. And we should never forget that the Lord gave himself for us to prove how much he cares for us. Further than that, as a congregation and as a part of God's family, we care. If anyone needs comfort or help or assistance in some way, we would try to provide that. If you're uncomfortable doing that in a public way, you can come to us privately, but we do always have a small allotted time for anyone to come forward if they have a need. We may not have all the answers, but we would try to help. And most of us, most of us do have friends or family that would be there for us that we could contact. Don't be embarrassed to reach out when you need help or if you just need comfort or someone to talk to. And don't let this lie deprive you of your relationships, especially your relationship with God. You're alone. I'll tell you who's really alone. People in the world without God, they're alone. They are alone in the darkness and the evil of Satan's kingdom, and they don't even know it. In Christ, we are never alone. It's so important that we understand that. I think we mentioned that a little bit in class this morning. 
It's so important that we understand that. Isaiah chapter 41, verses 8 through 10. But you, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest regions and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not cast you away. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. When you first read this, you might think, well, we're not Israel, we're not Jewish, so this does not apply, but that's why I wanted to show it in context here, but you'll notice we are spiritual descendants of Abraham, God's friend. We are called, Christians are called from all over the earth, and we are God's servants. We are chosen and not cast away. So when we read verse 10, we can know that God is with us. You can look at Joshua chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. So the, the first verse is just explaining to us what we need to do. And prosperous is not always all about money, just so that we will have a good and thriving life. And then the second, the, the next verse, verse 9, Have I not commanded you, be strong and of good courage, do not be afraid nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Again, we were talking about that this morning. These instructions to Joshua, they apply to us just as well. The Lord is with us in good times and in bad times. We are never alone, and he is always available to us at any time and anywhere. You're a failure. Okay. Sometimes in life we do fail. We fall. We make mistakes. We err in judgment. We stray. We fall prey to our temptations. But notice these are temporary. These are temporary mistakes and temporary results. Proverbs chapter 24, verse 16. For a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again, but the wicked shall fall by calamity. It's only failure if we don't get back up, if we quit trying, if we give up. And I want us to see who is here for us when we do fall. If you look at Psalm 145, 14. The Lord upholds all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. Do not focus on the setbacks, on the things that go wrong. We know sometimes life is unfair and things don't work out the way we want. Joseph spent years imprisoned, wrongly imprisoned, but God brought him out of that. We have to be willing to get back up and stay the course and try again. You're unworthy. Okay, I, I'll give on this one. We are unworthy. We've all sinned. We will never be worthy of God's love. We will never be worthy of the Lord's sacrifice. So what? 
It just makes his gift and his salvation all the more powerful and wonderful that he did that for us. It's not like he didn't know. But let's look at Isaiah here when he is called and he sees the Lord. So I, this is Isaiah chapter 6, verses 5 through 7. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal which he had taken from the tongs, uh, taken with the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your iniquity is taken away, and your sin purged. Notice that Isaiah knows he's unworthy, knows he dwells with unworthy, just like we do, we dwell among the unworthy. But God supplied a way for him to be worthy. And we should remember that God did the same for us. He has done the same for us. But also, if we look at John chapter 2, verse 23 and 25, this is speaking about Jesus. Jesus knew who he was sacrificing himself for. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. The Lord knew he was dying for sinners, us unworthy, sinful people. He knew even then what we are, what we were, what we would be. He chose to save us. And that is the love of God, the love of God that is mentioned in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, which I'm not going to have here, but that is that love that is mentioned there. And he still knows that even now we still have sin, that we are flawed. Yet he gives us a way to be counted as worthy. You look at uh, 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. From all unrighteousness. The Lord makes us worthy with his sacrifice, not by anything that we've done, his blood cleanses us and makes us like he is. Now, I want to have one more example of a tactic that is used on us. A couple of examples maybe, but uh, it's distractions. Distractions in this life. Things that we face that are a little different from the others, but it's still in our minds and in our hearts. Distractions are where our focus is not on the Lord, where our focus is directed to other things. If we look here, this is from the parable of the sower, Matthew chapter 13, verse 7. Now, this is when Jesus is telling the parable, and he's talking about the 
sower sowing the seeds, and some of the seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. And then later, in verse 22, he's explaining this to his disciples. Now he who received seed among the thorns is he who hears the word, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. So the cares of this world, there are many things that can be counted as that, worries and anxieties, things that we like about the world, things that we like that we become maybe obsessed with. Also the deceitful, deceitfulness of riches, trusting in earthly money instead of God. Being overly concerned with the things of the world is a problem. Yes, we need certain things in the world. We know that. And God knows that. And he supplies us with those things. If we look at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, the Hebrews, the Hebrews writer, if I accidentally say Paul, that's just a mistake. I might do that occasionally. Just, just letting you know. Anyway, I know it's not Paul, or no, we don't know that it's Paul. Let's put it that way. Anyway, therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and that's referring back to chapter 11 of Hebrews, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In the first verse, he mentions laying aside every weight and the sin. The weights are not necessarily sin. The weights are things that maybe are distracting us, keeping us from following the Lord correctly and appropriately. Maybe it's things that I mentioned before, like maybe we get obsessed with. We may like sports. We, we mentioned the game here earlier. Uh, we may like um, mystery novels, for instance, or science fiction stuff. I like science fiction stuff. So any number of good things that you may like and enjoy, but if we become overly obsessed with them, they can become a hindrance to us. They can slow us down. They can keep us from following the Lord. The Lord is our good shepherd who we should be focused on, who we should be following, right? So these can be deceptive because they're actually, they seem harmless. Mainly they are harmless of themselves, right? But it's when we become overly obsessed with them that then it leads to problems. And like I said, notice in verse 2, we should be looking at the shepherd. We should be following the Lord. And remember, all these tactics, they're to draw us away. They're to draw us away from the Lord and the family of God. They're to draw us out by ourselves so that we are vulnerable. And these are daily struggles we face. This is why we need the armor of God. That's why we need to pray, praise God, read our Bible every day, and come to church. Now, I want us to remember some of our people that uh, we think of in the Bible, we associate, and maybe we think of them as heroes. And we can recognize that they are people of God. 
They were called to do great things. Through them, God did a lot of things. Yet they were flawed. They were flawed and imperfect, just like we are. Moses, considered to be possibly the most important prophet and leader in Jewish history, but he was a murderer. You look in Exodus chapter 2, verse 12. He looked, made sure the coast was clear, killed a guy, and buried him out in the sand. Moses had anger issues and maybe some pride. You look at Numbers chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. He was only supposed to speak to the rock, and in his anger, he struck that rock twice. That's why he didn't get to the, go to the promised land. Jonah was rebellious. He was out and out. Jonah is kind of funny because he just refused to cooperate with God in the beginning right off the bat. He's just like, no. He did not like the people of Nineveh. And he was angry that God was gracious and merciful to those people. In the end, he did what God wanted. But we have to remember he was flawed. He wasn't on board with the operation at the very beginning. David was a murderer and an adulterer. But he was also a man after God's own heart. That sounds very conflicting, doesn't it? But we are imperfect people. We have things like that where we do yearn for the Lord, but we still make mistakes. We still give in to temptations. Paul started out as a persecutor and killer of Christians. We all know that. Yet he ended up writing all those epistles and he has taught, I've learned a lot from Paul. I, we probably all have. James and John. Now they were offended. They were offended for the Lord's sake at a Samaritan village that basically refused Jesus they wanted to call down fire on that village and just destroy them all. You can read that in Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 56. Now, Jesus didn't want that. He rebuked them. He stopped them and rebuked them. But that's what they were going to do. They were offended and mad for his sake, you know. But we could continue on throughout the Bible and look at all the flawed people that God called. If you look at them, they all have the same types of problems we do. But the Lord called them and used them to do wonderful things. And he can also do that with us. Not because of anything that we've done, but because of what he has done for us. Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now look at verse 13. We're delivered from the power, the power of darkness, and we're conveyed into the kingdom or the principality of the Lord. We're no longer in the kingdom of darkness. We're no longer in Satan's kingdom. We are in the kingdom of his son. We're in the Lord's kingdom and we're out of the power of darkness. The answer to all these deceptions, to all these things where 
Satan tries to draw us away from the Lord, from the good shepherd, and draw 